Professor Andrew Mallet is an adult nephrologist with a special interest in genetic kidney disease and nephrogenetics. Having been a Churchill Fellow and an RACP Foundation Jaco Research Establishment Fellow, he has a strongly emerging clinical and research profile in this field. Currently Professor of Medicine, JCU and Clinical Fellow, IMB at UQ, Prof Mallet is also National Director of the KidGen Collaborative and Director of Clinical Research and Nephrologist Townsville University Hospital. He's committed to improving the understanding of inherited kidney disease, as well as the clinical care and outcomes of Australians affected by it. Andrew, it's great to see you again. Uh, thank you for making time for us. How are you? I'm really, really well. Thank you so much for having me, Anita. It's, it's great to be able to do this together and to see each other again like this. It is, it is. Thank you. So um, let's learn a bit about you. Can you please tell us about your career to date and where your interest in nephrology stems from and, and also how you've come to uh, gain your position as the Director of Clinical Research at Townsville? Um, it, so it's been a really interesting ride, I think is what I say to a lot of people. Um, so I'm, uh, as you said, I'm the Director of Clinical Research and Professor of Medicine here at Townsville now, um, and I'm an adult renal physician or nephrologist by training. Um, and interestingly, I think I fell in, and I don't think it's too much to say, fell in love with that specialty area. In fact, actually as a medical student initially, and I found that it was the area and the, the domain of practice that I kept coming back to. So, you know, there were other things that you would find to be interesting and an experience as you were going, but this was always the area I came back to multiple times over. Um, and then as a, as a junior doctor by that stage, I think through the process of working out, well, what do I do with my career? Really had to think quite hard about, well, this isn't just about what I want to do. It's also about what I perhaps don't want to do. And the best litmus test I've, I've, I said to myself was, what do I, what do I imagine life looking like perhaps when I'm 50? Um, and through that lens went, well, I want to be a physician, first of all, and I want to be an adult physician and then started down that pathway. And I think importantly, didn't have to have all the answers to everything as I went and then just walked through and found that yes, adult nephrology was the area I wanted to proceed next into, did so and then worked out as part of that, that well, I wanted to move into a space where I was doing research within that space and so did so and then found that I really enjoyed that and added in some additional um, leadership and management elements to that. And lo and behold, I've found myself here. Um, I think most critically looking back is that it wasn't as if when I was, say, 17, finishing high school, that this was the point at this time in my life I exactly knew I wanted to be at. Um, and in fact, if a 17-year-old said that this is exactly what they wanted to be doing at 38, that there might be a disorder for that. That might not be entirely healthy or normal. Um, um, but um, yeah, it's been a really interesting process to get here. Yes, I'm sure it has been, and you've certainly filled so much into your years. You know, I've seen your CV. It's a very full CV, 
Uh, So what stands out to me at the moment is that, you know, you did sort of start thinking about putting a plan in place and, you know, obviously that developed over time, but as you went, different opportunities arose and and you took them up and pursued those. Yes. Yes. I mean, Um, yeah, people say that you might be lucky, you know, in in doing things, but I I mean, luck is really that collision of opportunity and and hard work. and so I think identifying, yeah, yeah. you know, when to put in hard work and, and opportunities that come your way has been something I've certainly grasped recurrently um, through my career. Right. Yes. Well, that appears to be the case when I when I have looked at your CV in the past. And uh, many listeners also combine passions for clinical work and research. And today I'd like to get your insights regarding how you've managed to juggle the many competing demands that arise out of each of these interests and what you would recommend to doctors aspiring to um, a career as a clinical academic? Um, Oh, gosh. I think in Australia it can be challenging at times because this is a pathway that we see the outcome from, but the pathway to get there isn't entirely 100% clear. Um, and, you know, there are more supports coming in now mm-hmm. to enable people to, to, to undertake this career pathway, but it's, it, it's not as, uh, as well demarcated and thus supported as it is in other places, particularly, say, like in North America or in the United Kingdom. Now, that doesn't mean it's not a, a very worthwhile pathway. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what I say to, to many of my trainees and junior staff and even other consultants, to be honest, as well, is to find the things research-wise, in particular within your practice that you're passionate about. Um, finding those things means that you can direct your energies, even which, even though that's often a fixed bandwidth, you can focus them in a way that generates impact, which is the currency within which you know research is increasingly operating, um, to ensure that you're creating impact in multiple domains concurrently. So, you know, for a more junior trainee, you're doing a case report, you know, uh, within the practice, so a patient that you're caring for, um, and you're doing a case report on their particular, you know, noteworthy presentation. And through that, you're also learning about, you know, things like ethics and governance and consent and publications and things like this. All of those efforts will improve fundamentally the care that you're providing as well as your training but also developing those research skill sets. So finding those ways that there's always a, a value add, there's a plus something um, to what you're doing means that the energy that you're bringing, um, I think results in over time, much like things like say, for instance, our superannuation, it just builds up. Um, and summatively, I think it can build up to a career that's um, impactful, even if it's, it's sometimes a little you know, unclear as to how you exactly got there. Yeah, steady, you know, consistent effort is the the resounding sort of theme that I'm hearing here, as well as passion. And I I really encourage people to be led by the things that they love doing. Absolutely, it's it's because as you say, if you if you're really enjoying it, then the outcomes are going to always be the best that they possibly can be. Yes, it's critical. I think. Um, that whatever you choose to do, either as a career specialty or within your career specialty, is actually something that you really 
genuinely care about. Life is too short to be doing someone else's dream um, or career. You have to do what you're actually mm. interested in. Um, and uh, and I think that helps you to both be more, to, to, to succeed, um, to endure sometimes elements that can be challenging, but also fundamentally to, I think, um, be happy with what you are, have done and are doing. Right. And uh, and no doubt there were some key people who you turned to for guidance and support mm. during particularly challenging times. Are there any particular mentors or teams or a, or a particular uh, professional network that helped you through? There are a lot. And I think that there's, you know, I've learned this over time as well, that there's a there are distinctions between different people who for periods of your career help you around specific things and there are um there are supervisors as one kind of category of people there are mentors and then there are champions and we all need a bit of all of those and they mean different things um i've been really fortunate to have strong mentorship you know from um, different people throughout my career at different stages um uh the you know and i think that was fan, i think phenomenal to help me progress through the clinical training pathway um that i did as well as transitioning into beginning a research pathway around you know doing a research higher degree um through that research higher degree and then beyond different people so the other thing is these different supervisors mentors and champions all bring different skills experiences and knowledges which are applicable at different times in different ways for you in your career as it develops as well. So it you, you always remain as much as one can on friendly terms with these people, these people who support you, but it doesn't mean that necessarily the mentor of today is going to be a mentor forever. I don't think that's healthy or reasonable either um, mm. because that relationship has to be meaningful for both parties um, and, and, re, and you know, valid and, and fulfil a, a need. But I think transitioning those and seeking out mentorship is a really key thing so it i think i learned fairly early on it can't be accidental um it has to feel seamless so that you're seeking out those opportunities and for and, and mm. asking for people to mentor you and i would suggest to many that it's it's not a shameful thing to ask you know people oh i'm looking for a mentor would you be keen to mentor me how would they know unless you ask People aren't waiting in the wings, I don't think, to say, hey, can exactly. I mentor you? Um, I think alerting people and asking that question, people respond positively to. Mm, I think most people actually take it as quite a compliment and they're, and they're willing to share their knowledge and they're happy to help other people develop and give them a hand up along the way. No. especially when they know that there's uh, going to be a flow-on effect of that, that as your career progresses, you'll be doing the same for others. Absolutely. There is that, that um, paying it forward phenomenon too. So it, in due course, the mentee becomes the mentor. Um, and uh, I, I've certainly realised that. And I think that's uh, if you've been the recipient of very positive and strong mentorship, that really helps you in delivering mentorship as well to others. Um, and uh, I've I found that incredibly rewarding as just as I hope that, you know, me being a mentee to some of my mentors, I hope that they'd found it incredibly rewarding as well. Mm. Yeah. 
And look, Andrew, you know, you mentioned age before. You're, you're quite young for a professor. Has age ever been uh, raised as a potential issue or have people been generally accepting of your ability and, and progression to senior positions? This is a really tricky question, um, which I love. You know, um, I would be absolutely lying if I didn't say that this had come up. Um, I can still remember, I mean, the most notable and early um, scenario was um, I, I did a Churchill Fellowship um, a few years ago, and I remember as part of the process of being interviewed for that, which is a fantastic, really you know, you know, amazing process, um, um, I was asked by someone on the panel um, about what made me think that I could do what I was proposing, given that I was at that time, you know, a near final year registrar, which they were a non-medical person, they understood was fairly junior in the grand scheme of things. Um, so that was probably the first time I experienced nakedly, you know, any kind of form of subtle ageism. Um, and I was pretty shocked, I'll be honest. Um, I was really shocked. But uh, I think uh, just as, you know, one confronts adversities like this, you got to come back quickly. And so I remember just kind of saying, "Well, that's a, that's a it's a it's a wonderful perspective." However, you know, I'm I think how I was twenty eight or something at the time, and I said, "I'm twenty eight. I've completed two undergraduate degrees, a master's degree, an associate fellowship, and and within one year of completing a fellowship, and I'm twenty eight. Um, imagine with your support what I'll be able to do over the next two decades." There were no more questions about my right. age at that point. Um, as is probably, I think, you know, yeah. correctly the case. Um, I think it come, has come up again, you know, when I, um, I think in a general sense, when I was looking to this role, as you pointed out, I am on, on the young side to be appointed to be a, a full professor, a level E um, uh, within the university. And I'm not appointed as an adjunct. I'm a, I'm a full internal professor um, uh, on staff with the university. Mm. Um, it's, it, it happens and is a phenomena. Um, that occurs, but I think it, it, one has to encourage people to see what you're capable of. Um, and age is just a number. Um, and I love that quote that, you know, whilst youth is no guarantee of innovation, age is also no guarantee of wisdom. Um, and right. I think you can, you know, very much regardless of your age, demonstrate capability and just being authentic and just being very clear helps, I think, to uh, circumvent this as a scenario. But I apologise to hear, you know, that just I'm sure there are many others who have experienced these unusual questions um, and all of the isms that we see, you know, favouritism, sexism, racism, ageism. Um, uh, the best way I, I have thought to handle them is, directly and to um, negate that they're uh, really appropriate in the scenario. Mm. Yeah, well, nicely handled and, and nicely put. And I think that that'll be, you know, valuable advice for a lot of the, the junior doctors coming up and, and indeed anyone who's experiencing the isms uh, because unfortunately they're alive and well and you mentioned the Churchill Fellowship uh, could you tell us about that experience and, and the way that that impacted on your professional development? 
Absolutely. So my, my, the Church of Fellowship that I did um, was really focused around the clinical practice in the subspecialty that I'm in now, which is around inherited and genetic forms of kidney disease, which whilst that sounds like a really small area of, of a, a reasonably modest specialty, it's actually a really big area of especially that affects um, uh, somewhere in the region of one in eight Australians. So, it, you know, it's actually right. a much bigger area than we had appreciated. And until the time that I went and undertook that Churchill Fellowship, there was very little activity in that space here in Australia. So there was a lot of unmet need. Um, I was coming towards the end of my advanced training and uh, I thought, as has often been the case, to, to, to give it a go. Why not? You know, what's the worst that could happen? They say no. So I, I, I thankfully, the application was a, a fairly short, I think, two-pager, you know, space-limited application, um, and placed an application and was shortlisted. And so in Queensland, only one in 10 expressions of interest are actually selected to proceed to interview. Um, and then, which I, I didn't realise at the time, all I knew was that I got an invite to come to the interviews that were being held on a Saturday at the Supreme Court and rocked up at the Supreme Court and it found it was probably a much bigger deal than I'd really thought it was, and, which was hilarious, and um, was interviewed by a panel of, you know, 20 luminaries, literally, um, across um, many sectors in Queensland in the private chambers of one of the Supreme Court justices. And um, like all of the other interviewees, uh, of which there was about 100 of us um, across two days, and then I was selected. Uh, and, and I guess the next signal I had that this was really something was that we got we uh, we were invited to government house to be awarded by the governor. <laughs> um, by this stage, I was, oh, wow. I was starting to realise, oh, what have I got myself into here? Um, and um, it was quite an experience. And then, you know, this was all just leading up to the actual event, which was going on this Churchill Fellowship for two months um overseas and i was mm -hmm. I, I thought it was it was amazing because that it's an opportunity to step out in a funded fashion fully funded to do so by the organization um and go to all of these places to just observe and learn and experience um from people who are the absolute leaders in their area and everybody i emailed to come and visit overseas um across you know the united kingdom France, um, Canada, and uh, the United States all said yes. So I went and had this two-month adventure mm. and came home and from there was able to launch into both my clinical practice in that space but also into commencing a research higher degree, a PhD. Um, I think that that experience was transformative career-wise um, and also probably personally as well because it was at a transition point for me um, and really made me think about what did I want to do and how did I want to do it and where did I want to be um, and how do you fit all the bits in because life isn't just your career life is a whole lot of other bits too um, and uh, having mm. that space to do it was great excellent excellent and again you know that comment attests to what we were saying before about people being willing to give give others a hand up and share their time and share their expertise and knowledge um, because I, I think too those people understand 
uh, the benefits of doing that rather than those few that might be out there that'll be a bit cynical about, you know, a young up and coming, um, brilliant young doctor. So I think, you know, it's really worthwhile for, for junior doctors to hear about, uh, these experiences and the opportunities that are out there for them. And, you know, if you don't throw that your hat in the ring, then you've, you don't get that sort of exposure and, and I'm really interested too in terms of the experience you had in other countries because I imagine that you formed uh, professional networks and contacts that you're still, some of whom you'd be in touch with today. Would that be right? Absolutely. So the, the, the key and core place that I did um, based myself over um, a majority of the time was at Aden Brooks Hospital um, at the, with the University of Cambridge. And the team there um, mm -hmm. remain close colleagues and friends, I would say. Um, um, and uh, I, in fact, to the point where I, over the subsequent few years, um, I went back again and again for anywhere from two to eight weeks each year um, in a similar model, um, because I also rapidly realised that that more traditional model of moving overseas to do a one-year fellowship wasn't compatible with my life circumstance my, my my spouse my wife was in the middle of her training and you know it wouldn't be fair for us to just pick up and go um and disrupt her training and life and everything as well so we did this middle model where i went for a, a bit of time every year and they were incredibly welcoming um of that um and it's built great relationships and then other centers um particularly in uh, the united kingdom have maintained strong relationships which have then you know, even as recently as just now continuing to do research collaborations together. So those relationships keep paying back for both parties, you know, many, many, many years later. That's fantastic. Andrew, I'm aware that, um, you know, your experience, you're, you're in a leadership position now or a number of leadership positions and roles. I'm sure that many people look to you for guidance and support and, uh, and I'm sure that listeners would also be really interested to hear about some some of those that stand out to you. And and I'm keen to hear in particular about the KidGen Collaborative and how that came into being. Would you like to you. share about that? Absolutely. So, would you like so to share KidGen has been... Yes, absolutely. So KidGen has been a a major part, I think, in these most recent few years of my career is particularly when we were moving from a model where we had a, a single renal genetic clinic in Queensland, which, you know, we we could see was working and could be translatable, um, and then working with colleagues in other states and territories and, uh, to see whether similar models may work there, and then also bringing in different research angles, both genomically and in you know, wet labs and things. Um, and all of these bits and pieces that were developing bit by bit then were catalyzed around an NHMRC grant that we received. Um, I was still a PhD student at the time. Um, uh, and that really kind of was a focal point to bring together all of the um, uh, centers and collaborators. And resultant from that was the formation in 2015 of the KidGen Collaborative, which is a, a collection of people um, and centers around the country focused on improving care research and outcomes for Australians affected by inherited forms of kidney disease. Um, we were then fortunate to 
both because of the national footprint and overarching aims and themes, um, we, we have been supported through multiple sequential projects um, through, ex, through funding, uh, initially and, and continually now even from Australian Genomics, um, then called the Australian Genomic Health Alliance, which is a national uh, is a national consortium um, supporting the implementation um, of clinical genomics across the country. And we undertook two large flagship programs there within our Kijin consortium. And then more recently funded from the federal government Department of Health um, in support of the National Strategic Action Plan for Kidney Health around an initiative um, focusing on a few things, but particularly, you know, clinician education around genetic testing for kidney inherited forms of kidney disease collecting information and better understanding the needs of our patients and families. Um, and then just in the last literally six or so months, we've been successful in a further, going back to our kind of, I would say our roots, um, a large uh, grant from the MRFF in the Genomic Health Future Mission um, over the next uh, several years, going back to do research genomics to understand the ununderstandable um, uh, for patients and families. And it, that all sounds, I know, very ragtag as I walk through it, being a sequential series of projects that at times are quite different. But importantly, it represents, I think, a community of people of many different kinds and makes and locations, all focused on a common set of aims and interests. And that's been fantastic to be part of leading and facilitating. And now I'm at a stage where um, I'm, I'm, see, I'm, I'm leading and seeing through this next phase, through this next um, uh, MRFF grant, and I'm actually actively at a point now looking to be handing over that national directorship of the consortium um, as we get, we'll get no doubt towards the end of that. Um, and that's a really great place to be, I think, in, um, in seeing co friends and colleagues also develop to be able to come next and bring their flavour and their take on what that consortium will look like. Um, it's really exciting and I think it's important to keep it fresh and dynamic. Excellent. Well, that kind of answers my, my next question because I wanted to ask you about sort of um, where priorities do you think should lie when it comes to supporting sort of budding and established researchers um, to ensure that, that those activities within medicine flourish and, and, and what really stands out to me about your career actually is this I love that you don't necessarily go down the well-trodden path you're very um, aware of other opportunities and connections and the importance of collaborating and working with others so you know I think that was really well conveyed when you were talking about your experiences overseas through the Churchill Fellowship and then you know the benefits that have come on after that uh, for so many other people, and I, yeah, it's it sounds really interesting what you're doing and and handing over, and and I particularly like that because sometimes people don't like to hand over things; they like to hang on to certain positions. But there's a lot to be gained from from giving some of the action to to others, right? Yeah, absolutely, and, and this is you know knowing that knowing and learning those differences in those roles between supervisor, mentor and champion and and how it's important mm -hmm. that we we deliver in each of those at different times and you know the critical difference I have found I've learned most recently you know between mentors and champions is that champions are very much like mentors except they will throw opportunities in front of an individual as well 
um, whether they realize they're doing that or not. Um, but it's important to, to do that. You can be a sounding board for others and helping them with their self-directed career development, but being a champion where when opportunities come to provide them for others, um, rather than just take, necessarily taking them yourself, um, I think is really important. And it, it, I, I think that there's a, a personal sense of joy that you can very much attain from doing that. Um, be, you know, because um, this is a team sport. This isn't a, a, a an end of one marathon. In fact, it's, you know, it's about seeing ways in which you can enjoy the success of others rather than being perhaps um, uh, motivated to get ahead at all costs. Uh, that's not a, that's absolutely not a, um, uh, I think a, a value set that I have. Whether that's been positive or negative for my career, I don't know. But because of my value set, to be honest, I probably don't care. And I, well, I'd say it's been positive for you and for the others around you. And to me, that spirit of gen generosity uh, is a really great quality. And that's, you know, sometimes we don't see that. I was speaking with someone today who uh, was telling me kind of the opposite story, actually. Um, and I thought mm. that's so disappointing that he's someone who wants more opportunities, but because they're not meeting a very set list of criteria that they're not getting those chances. And, you know, I think people need to look more beyond um, those sort of very strict guidelines at times where possible and, and give people a chance to, to show what they can do. And, uh, and like you say, champion and encourage them to be able to develop, take that next step in their, their career development. And, uh, and I'm curious also in terms of your, um, your supervision of, of research projects, what, what have you found to be some of the most rewarding experiences um, from, from the, the research um, that you've supported so many of your colleagues with? Oh, my gosh. Um, it's, I think that's a shame. That's, thank you for asking that question because it's, it's an area of great professional and personal joy and I, I, I've realized more and more that maybe the, pro, the approach I've taken is a little different as well. Um, I have tended to always ensure that the, those who I was supervising and I've always communicated the projects that they're doing are theirs. You know, I'm here to supervise and will be very involved as much or as little as they should need, um, but fundamental ownership of whichever project or program of work needs to rest with them as the, the lead researcher. That's actually important. Um, you know, one doesn't want to be caught up doing somebody else's PhD or program or, or project or whatever, because I think that even if it's wildly successful, at some level it may undermine their personal sense of the success um, that's come from that. So um, whether it's a small focus project for a, a, a a researcher, a clinician researcher or non-clinician researcher even, who's at a very early stage of research development, completion of that can be just as, you know, wonderful and celebrated as the very, very experienced researcher who's completing a, a, a PhD program. Um, I think it's, it's not just about what type of research it is, but it's about for that individual where they are at in their career development, what does that mean for them? Um, so, I, I mean, I 
I'm lucky to be able to say I'm incredibly proud of all of the different research projects across multiple different fields and domains, um, both for, 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 for trainees, clinicians, um, medical students, research higher degree students. All of them are amazing. And the other key thing that brings them together is that they're all, they're all damn fun. Um, you, you have to be doing things, I think, that um, are entertaining and interesting and fun. Um, and each of them in their own way is very much that. Um, sometimes they're wildly different and they don't all conform to a very neat portfolio of work which is immediately identifiable as exactly what I'm interested in. But I don't see that there is necessarily a need for that. There are sometimes projects or research high degree programs that are very much aligned to my personal research interests, but often they're not. And that's probably, I, I really think that's a positive thing as well. Most recently, since I think coming to North Queensland, I've, um, I, a PhD student who um, I'm primary, the primary supervisor for is actually a pharmacy graduate. And she's um, doing a fantastic research high degree program around pharmacist-led education around medication prescribing, which is a very, actually a pretty complicated space um, for final year medical students and first year junior doctors. And that's been a fantastic program, very much outside my comfort zone research-wise, but I'm learning a lot, she's learning a lot, and it, it's really exciting. Um, so I, I think it, it, it's opening yourself up to those opportunities and I think being open to being surprised by things um, to keep it fresh. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. And uh, and in terms of change uh, with research and, and indeed across uh, clinical practice, um, you know, technology is impacting so many areas from obviously from telehealth and diagnostic tools to data sharing platforms. And, and other tools for collaborating more easily. Um, is there currently a potential game changer for nephrology and future research that you're working on? So I, nephrology is an area which um, is traditionally a very academic specialty area, which is great, suits me to a T. Um, but mm -hmm. it is also an area which has been hunting down what are the big game-changing next technologies and approaches that will transform the outcomes and lives of our patients. Um, because, you know, end-stage kidney disease or kidney failure is um, incredibly impactful in a negative way for, for Australians who are so affected. And we've tried many, many different approaches to alleviate that. Um, I think that where once upon a time uh, I had thought that, oh, there, there has to be something which is the singular game changer. And occasionally, yes, there are a something, a singular thing that is the game changer, one of which in our space would be when hemodialysis first became um, uh, generalizable and able to be delivered to patients. That was an absolute game changer. And then um, when kidney transplantation became feasible, um, that was the next one. At the moment, I think looking into the future, there are a few different areas um, um, across different domains, which are iteratively progressive. Uh, in, you know, in the diagnostic space, I think our, particularly our genomic and advanced proteomic type technologies are going to continue to transform the level of precision we have diagnostically, both, you know, 
um, uh, for, say, patients like with genetic kidney disease, but also the way that we look at, say, things like kidney biopsies or blood test measurements and things like that. Um, I, I think therapeutically, there's been a significant refocusing in, at an industry level around treatments that slow progression of kidney disease of many different forms. And we're beginning to see the benefits of this come now. Um, uh, new agents such as the SGLT2 inhibitors, um, which are clearly going to make very substantial impact um, um, in the kidney disease space. Um, in rare kidney disease, there is a renewed focus um, at indus in industry for uh, novel compounds um, to slow individual rare kidney diseases that might have a very specific underpinning molecular mechanism. But then also at a broader state, we're re-engaging with patients to hear more and learn more and be more responsive to the needs that they have. And that's really important and showing a shift. And in the way that we treat kidney failure, you know, that really hard end outcome, there are new things coming such as um, uh, implantable uh, kidney type devices, which are non-biological. Um, uh, and so may take potentially take the place of some of our kidney replacement therapies, such as dialysis or kidney transplantation. Um, and people may have seen just recently uh, initial pilot studies of um, xenotransplantation. So which one had previously thought and at times, if one dared joke, was always going to be tomorrow's solution to today's problem, but it would always be tomorrow's solution. There's now a pathway where it actually may become today's solution which um, I think is fantastic to see, but we need to hear more over these coming few years. Um, I'm filled with hope for the next, uh, for the remainder of my career that we're going to see substantial progress um, in nephrology and that's exciting. Um, it's great to be, it will be great to be not just a participant in that, but also even just an observer to be able to see the change that these things will make to people's lives. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. I'm sure people will find that immensely interesting and, and helpful, Andrew. Um, and, and I think about where you are in the world now, and one of the reasons I wanted to speak with you is that I'm interested in speaking to clinicians all over the country uh, and not people who are, you know, just only those based in the large cities uh, because there's so many, obviously, different communities around Australia and and different um, those different environments impact people in different ways and including the clinicians who are treating patients. Um, what do you see, um, having been returned back to Townsville, um, as some of the main challenges faced by the communities of far north Queensland? And, and how do those impact on the roles of clinicians and even the researchers? I think um, there's a one of the biggest things I've noticed since returning to Northern Queensland is um, the density is clearly very different. So um, previously living in Brisbane for well over a decade, um, within Greater Brisbane there are multiple hospital and health services. Um, so as a, as an employee, as a clinician, and also as a researcher, there were multiple options potentially over time as to where one might want to work without necessarily needing to up stumps and move house and things like that. So that model where there's a lot of options potentially around you um, because of the density um, uh, is very different in Northern Queensland. So here in Townsville, there's a single large public hospital, but there's just that, a single large public hospital. So um, for someone like myself and 
um, my spouse, who've devoted our lives to public service and being employed in the public sector. Um, well, there is only really one potential employer, um, and that's a little different. There's also only really there, you know, there's one large university uh, based here in North Queensland. There are others with campuses, of course, in Northern Queensland, but largely are education focused in terms of what their local footprint is, as opposed to you know primary research. Um, so I, I think that that's a major difference in terms of access and visibility for patients. You know, it may mean that. Um, their their local health service, you know, us as the clinicians within them have to perform perhaps a wider variety of functions. So as opposed to having our specialty function or our subspecialty function, additionally embracing a degree of generalism in, within with what what we do as well is also important. And there's been a, 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 a very appropriate, I think, in Australia, um, re-engagement with generalism as opposed to following special, specialization and specialism to its zenith. And now we're at a point where, well, what does that mean um, for for clinicians um, in their training, for for patients expecting appropriately very good care um, uh, in in a variety of settings? And in, I've had some really interesting discussions locally with leaders within the medical school here and with even within the hospital that these aren't diametrically opposite things. Where just because you're an ultra specialist in one area, that doesn't mean that you're not also having other hats on. And you're also a generalist as well in other ways. Whereas before the presumption had been, if you were, say, someone like myself, where I'm a, an adult renal physician, which they would already classify as being a, special, a subspecialist, and then I'm a, I subspecialize even further into specifically inherited and genetic forms of kidney disease, I'm the kind of person who's supposed to only ever be in these 1,000-plus bed hospitals in the middle of capital cities. But they'd never anticipated, what if those people might also have other hats and so we can actually be multiple people at the one time and i think that this is one of a number of potential pathways forward to i think find a middle ground this isn't specialism versus generalism and that they're fundamentally opposed but what's the middle ground where they can coexist um, and that's a good thing for patients i think because they get the benefits of both worlds without us getting too siloed down um, and that's been, I think, really interesting to see and learn and hear um, um, and also to challenge people, you know, here who had particular ways of thinking, um, which, you know, maybe it was time to hear something a bit different. Maybe it was time to, to see someone who's doing something a little bit different. Um, and by virtue of being a local graduate from this medical school as well, they can't really not listen to me. <laughs> which has been really fun. They can't ignore me. Um, yeah. um, and they're also seeing, you know, a large number of their local graduates return. So this experiment of regionalised medical training is actually paying dividends, maybe not in necessarily the ways that they had exactly planned and thought at the beginning, but there are benefits coming. And um, certainly I've observed qualitatively that a significant proportion of the, the new hires as consultants here in Townsville over this past year, uh, many of them are actually local graduates who are returning. Um, and I think that's a, a fantastic right. affirmation of the model. And it also demonstrates, I think, for many of our trainees today in other places, where you are now may not be where you're going to be forever. And things change, seasons change. Um, you know, tomorrow is potentially a good time to, you know, start afresh. Um, and um, uh, people, you know, in places you've been before, generally speaking, um, 
we'll welcome you back with open arms. Excellent. And it's such great news for the, the people within those communities who are benefiting from from uh, the healthcare of people who've trained in numerous places and because they're in a smaller centre is not necessarily any disadvantage to them now. Uh, and I love that idea of, you know, challenging the status quo. And I think there's a lot of that going on uh, in, in lots of sectors and particularly medicine as well, which perhaps um, followed a very particular sort of career path or program for a long time. And I think that those um, set borders are starting to become a bit more, uh, they're shifting a, a bit, um, which is having very interesting outcomes for a lot of people. And so, Andrew, thank you for that. And um, so, so what's next for you in 2022? Oh, gosh. Um, so, um, uh, 2022 is, is going to be a really hopefully interesting and fun year. Um, it's a year to try and stay positive while hopefully one swabs stay negative. Um, uh, fingers crossed to, to, to seeing that through. Um, in my role, uh, we're at the point now where um, our hospital-wide research strategy, which is a, a multi-year strategy, is due for renewal. So I'm going to be very involved in redoing that. Um, there are a number of initiatives um, within the university further strengthening the discipline of internal medicine, which I'm um, the head of at 38, and I keep laughing at that whenever I say it out loud, um, uh, and trying to really, I think, fortify that as a viable career pathway um, and training pathway as well for our, our students locally. Um, in my research world, mm -hmm. I'm, uh, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of cool things on the boil, I can say that. Um, and there's the, the, the never-ending mill of applying for grants, hopefully getting a couple, doing some great research and getting some great papers out. Um, and uh, I have a couple of research higher degree students who, fingers crossed, will be submitting their theses this year, which will be great. Um, I'm looking forward to getting the robes back on and going to their hopefully in-person graduation ceremonies in due course, um, which will be awesome. Yes. Um, uh, and I think clinically, um, I'm really looking forward to now that I'm a bit more settled here in Townsville, um, going back to doing some of the things I really had forgotten that I loved, um, like inpatient medicine, it, not necessarily in overwhelming volumes, but doing some components of that um, and uh, continuing to strengthen that relationship with the renal department here that I'm obviously a part of. Um, because, you know, um, at the core of all of this is my passion for the, the practice of internal medicine generally, but, you know, renal medicine specifically. Mm, wonderful. Well, no shortage of activities planned on your uh, schedule for the year, which comes as no surprise to me. Uh, and I wish you all the very best with all of those projects, Andrew. And thank you very much for sharing your some of your story and your expertise with us today. Um, how can listeners learn more about you or potentially get in touch? Um, uh, anytime. Um, uh, very open. Um, uh, I think places to find me. Uh, so I would advocate for many of our trainees and staff to um, and to engage with Twitter. I know that sounds a bit silly um, and borderline a bit millennial, but um, I think it's fantastic academically. Um, you get to come into contact with people. Um, so mm -hmm. I'm on Twitter. I think I'm at Andrew Mallet, two L's and two T's, eight. 
um, on LinkedIn um, as well. People search me, they'll be able to find me. Um, and, and anytime, um, andrew.mallet um, at health.qld.gov.au. Um, please don't hesitate to reach out. So um, it's, it turns out, I w you, you will laugh. Um, some people Googled me recently. There are a few Andrew Mallets around, one of whom apparently has written a book on Linux, Linux um, coding. That's not me. Um, but, and Google's very confused <laughs> about us. But um, um, uh, yes, you know, right. very happy for people to reach out, ask questions, um, seek advice um, confidentially or otherwise. Um, and I hope everybody has a really fantastic and productive uh, year. Wonderful. Well, thanks again, Andrew. That's really kind of you to uh, extend that offer to people. And thanks again for your time. No worries. Thanks so much, Anita. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Standout Medical Careers. If you like the episode or think it will be useful to someone else, please leave a review at podchaser.com. And if you've got any questions, let me know on LinkedIn at Standout Medical Careers. And remember, the better you articulate your story, the more you will stand out. Mm -hmm.